Well, if you just think about like, oh, I want to be around a bunch of tough women who do shit themselves and have a deep longing for the world to be a better place. Are you with nuns or were you with dykes? It's hard to say, right? Socials of America. My name is Sarah New, and on this podcast, I interview activists, thinkers, and basically interesting people on the intersection of religion and politics, um, particularly socialist or radical politics. Thank you for bearing with us while we've had extremely busy seasons and have struggled to get some episodes up, but this episode should be worth the wait. It's extremely funny, very entertaining. It's with Kelly Denham. Um, ex-nun, genderqueer comic storyteller who's able to talk about really heavy things and really insightful things in super concise jokes, quips, um, in the the interview here, but I met Kelly through uh, attending Queer Memoir, which uh, was an event that happened right before the Dyke March here in New York City. It caught my interest by one of the jokes she made about what it's like to hustle in a capitalist system. And it just seems to me that she was someone who had a lot of stories to share. And I think one you'll see, one of the through lines through her stories is basically she brings us through various forms of communities. First, family community, then in a convent, and then the queer community and whatnot. And I think I was interested in looking at, like, how does a community built upon solidarity, among kind of communalism as opposed to individualism, among that a community that prioritizes human relationships and humans and sees humans not as commodities, what does that look like? And I think you see forms of it in the LGBT community, but also in the church, and some, I think sometimes in the intersection of both, because obviously there are people and communities in that intersection. So I hope you join the interview. Let me know what you think on the Patreon page, social media. Thank you for everyone who's supporting us. We're getting more and more supporters and patrons, which is incredible. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on oh, the yeah. Religious Socialism podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. I thought of you... I've been trying to get you on the show for a while, actually. Just haven't figured out the timing. Yeah, um, yeah. I noticed that when I was going back to my old emails. I was like, oh, this is our second conversation about Second conversation about, about it. I know. I get very excited about something, and then the follow-through gets a little harder for me. <laughs> but I was at a queer memoir storytelling event. The thing that made me think of you in terms of particular... As it intersects with this podcast was you were talking about selling merchandise or... And you made a joke about how you got to do this because it's hard to like hustle within the context of capitalism. Right, right. I think I said, yeah, I'm trying to get better at capitalism. So I was like, still oh, true. Still, still true. true. So I was struck by the joke and I wondered like what else was there. And I wanted to know more about, I always find people's religious stories very interesting and histories and evolutions. So yeah, that's partly why we're, I brought you, mm, I to bring you in here. Okay. okay. Yeah. So do, we tend to start autobiographically. Do you want to start? where you grew up, what kind of religious context, political context, that type of thing? Uh, so I grew up, I'm the seventh of a long line of, I'm the youngest of seven kids. Um, I'm from a rural Midwestern farming family. Well, farming and other things, because farming doesn't really make you a living anymore. But grew up in a very rural area. Um, my parents, I feel like my dad's religion was, well, he always said that he was an atheist, which is kind of interesting in Wisconsin in the 70s that anyone called themselves an atheist. I can remember a Jehovah Witness coming to our house mm. and him saying, I'm an atheist. And the person was like, I'd clearly not heard that that 
uh, response before. Like, I think most people would say like, oh, you know, I believe in God, but you know, I don't want to talk to you or something like that. But like for this guy in the seventies, be like, I'm an atheist. Um, but he was, uh, I would say that his religion was Dale Carnegie. You know, he was really into, uh, we had to read, uh, how to friend, win friends and influence people, which is actually a book about manipulation. We had she, to re- he made you read that kids, as part so of only seven kids. Yeah. And then we had to answer questions about it. So you um, catechism. Right. About, yeah. About Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. And <laughs> so I, they were very, they had both grown up really under dire conditions. And so, they kind of did that thing that parents do when they're worried that giving any comfort to their children will keep their make their children not able to survive, and so they've kind of made everything into a toughness lesson. You know, like any I always say that any complaint to my father was met with like, most people are just about as happy as they make up their mind they're going to be. Um, which he would either say that like Dale Carnegie said it or Winston Churchill, which has <laughs> pretty different uh, focus stories. But and you know, I would say like my mom, you could like you know get your thumb caught in a piece of machinery and you'd come out, you know, running in, mom, I just cut off my thumb and it's laying out in the yard. And she'd be like, you live, you march out and you pick up that thumb. You know, we don't leave things laying around like that. Like everything was kind of a toughness lesson, Yeah. but there wasn't really like, we might've went occasionally like to a Lutheran church when I was a, a young kid. But then when I was 12, my dad died and my mom was after like five weekends of being literally housebound because with all of us, because of the snow, because my dad was the one who had like the snowblower. We lived at the end of a three quarter mile driveway. My mom just packed up the station wagon. She's like, we're moving to Florida. Um, <laughs> an act I did not understand then, but I totally understand now. And I kind of can't believe it took her five weekends to do that. You know. Oh, wow. So then she also became like a born again Christian. And that's kind of where I ended up. Like we started going to a, uh, kind of a evangelical church. How old were you at the time? I was 13 when we moved. So, so a church in Florida. Yeah, a church in Florida. And, you know, an evangelical church. So we kind of went from the Stoic Germanic, if toughness is a religion, mm-hmm. to kind of this very emotional kind of evangelicalism. Mm. And it kind of, I think, put my mom a little over the edge. Like she got married to somebody again who... um was just banana. He was just a banana, and she. He was. Uh, we all, all my siblings and I have different fathers, and um, not all, but mostly have different fathers. And so she, I think she kind of just adopted the religious kind of milieu of whoever she was mm. married to. So she got married to this guy who looked just like Captain Kangaroo, which we were not supposed to mention, but he did. And uh, we were going to the driving Christian church at first, which is a just. I mean, it's a Christian church that has a that is a drive-in. It was a converted drive-in and you would drive in and they would give you, (laughs) I feel like it's very unique to Florida. (laughs) Uh, They would give you a little cup, like a Dixie cup with grape juice in it and then another little layer and then a tiny wafer on it. And then they would give you the, the thing to put in your car that, you know, broadcast the sermon, like the old one on the curly wire from, you know. Wow. So in the meantime, my stepdad was kind of like slightly losing his mind. And then my born again, older siblings who came back to visit were like, oh, he must be demon possessed. That's why he can only go to the driving Christian church, because I guess metal, you're in a car and that protects you from like the holy rays or whatever. Okay. (laughs) So, um, but he was so bananas that actually my older sister and I, who were the only ones left at home, were like, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you know, and so my mom kicked him out. We started going to this evangelical church, which they took kind of one look at me, and they're like, you know, we have a nice Christian school. We'd like to give you a scholarship, too. 
And it was like this conservative Christian school where one of the... What did they see when they looked at you at age uh, 13? I think it was just queerness. Might would be my guess because one of the rules after I'd been there like two or three months, they added a rule to the dress code that girls weren't supposed to wear flannel shirts over t-shirts. I mean, that's really, really specific, right? (laughs) And that was like literally my uniform. And I thought I looked great because it was the 80s, you know? And I even went to what ended up to be like my mom sent me on like a teen missions trip except for I thought it was my idea and that turned out to be although I did not know until recently an ex like an ex-gay camp kind of a working parents ex-gay camp Got but it. I didn't notice because I how was having they, a great time. How did they brand it? So it's just like oh we're building teens for God and you know it's get dirty for God go lay a brick is what they called it Wait, and so there was like a bunch. Get dirty for God go lay, lay a, a brick. It okay. is literally still on their t-shirts you know in 2018 as it was in 1986. So reconstruction? Like yeah what? like doing construction like we're building God's kingdom and so. Um, I guess that's good if you're like somewhat butch yes i mean it was like i learned how to use power tools you know it was this whole thing where we were supposed to be like i mean i now that i think about it i looked around i was like wow that's so like i remember this kid on my team whose gender was not easily determined by looking at them not that you can determine anyone but you know in that way in the you know of 30 years ago or whatever of and not having that kind of knowledge of gender as not as a binary construct but now I think about like him and the other kids and I was like, oh, of course we were all being, oh, but I didn't even notice. Like I just had a great summer. I got like a, to- a summer to be a tomboy. And there are these classes called, the only thing that like was a little bit fishy was <laughs> <laughs> these classes called From Grubby to Grace and God's Gentleman and they're divided by gender. All right. Um, and so the boys was basically teaching, according to the boys, according to my confidential informant, it was learning about how to get, how to pick activities to get a godly spouse. And um, so they're suggesting sports and not theater. Right. And so the girls was, it was basically about grooming. And I remember there was one whole section on makeup and it started with quoter Bob Land, the, co- the founder of Teen Missions. And it said, uh, if the barn looks better painted, why not paint the barn? That was like their slogan for why girls should wear makeup. Yeah. But what also happened is there was a component of that. So I spent like the summer at the boot camp and then you spend like a couple of weeks and I went to Brazil and I had never, you know, I'd seen, you know, like we were kind of living through our own poverty, but I hadn't seen, you know, the kind of poverty that like exists like in Belém, which is what like one of the, the cities that we were at. And so I hadn't really been experienced that kind of you know, knowing that people are hungry and that kind of thing, even though it certainly exists in the U.S. too. And so this was not the message we were supposed to be taking away, but I was also like, well, wait, I mean, so why? This seems like there might be an income inequality problem here. Like, why? Hmm, this is strange. So that kind of, she accidentally gave me the first taste of like, huh, huh. So there's no doctors in this particular area? Huh, you know. Right. So... Interesting. Yeah, I've never, I'm trying to think, I, I've never been to an ex-gate camp, but I've had friends who have been to one, and I don't know, maybe not in the 80s, but it was. It tends to be almost like gender camps more than mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah, yeah, because what else do they police, right? Like, yeah. they can't. Also, I think probably the ones you pay for, like, mm-hmm. I raised my own money, which I just think is so brilliant. My mom convinced me it was my own idea, and I raised my own money. I think, you know, you kind of have to hand it to my scared homophobic mom, right? Yes, <laughs> like, yes. But also, I think if you pay for it, you get a more specific experience. Yes, yes. <laughs> and were you in Brazil for, like, a missions trip? Yeah, they called it a missions trip, right? Oh. So we built summer camp, actually, for other kids. 
which I don't know that that was specifically going to be used as I think, you know, it was just like a summer camp, but we just, we laid a lot of bricks, basically. Like, <laughs> literally laid bricks, like not metaphorically or biologically. And so I'm curious about this, this whole story. Are you still in touch with people in this camp? Like how many uh, of them yeah, are, are, um, are actually queer? Yes, they're hilariously or... called F2M's former teen members, which was really confusing <laughs> during the 90s. <laughs> oh my gosh. F2M's, what were they? FTM's, right? FTM's. Former so, team member. Former team member. So, so I literally now belong to, you know, groups that are like F2M, F2M, but they're two different things. You yeah. Know? We're not using that phrase so much anymore, but for a while it was really confusing. Um, yeah, I actually am. I'm in touch with some folks, uh, mostly folks. There's this, uh, this other podcast called Good Christian Fun, um, which is about, it's, I mean, it's people who are, still, I believe, identify as practicing Christians, but they're kind of making fun of a lot of the the Christian culture. Yeah. You know, like the evangelical Christian, like born-again culture specifically. And I have um, reconnected actually through like their group on Facebook through like people that I knew through Teen Missions. So oh, okay. it's been kind of interesting because other people have kind of similar experiences. Yes, yes. Yeah, mission trips are definitely in the news uh, as of late. And I don't know if you want to talk about it, but it's all, I can get into a whole thing. But how for you were i guess evangelical for a period of time and then catholic right so, so i had to convert to catholicism convert to catholic. become a nun okay. um, which nobody had ever done you know it's like uh, so i was living in haiti and i was working so how i ended up in haiti because i was i went to bible college right which was just like such a bad idea for me and uh, for many reasons and um I had a friend of a friend who knew somebody who helped run a school for kids with disabilities in Haiti. And they're like, they need somebody to do recreation with the kids because they're just bored after classes and you don't need any special skills. And I was like, that sounds like me. I don't have any special skills. So I worked at a summer camp, saved my money and kind of lived on that for like eight or nine months. But that was in the middle of all of, so it was like 1989, which was, um, so the Duvaliers were kicked out of Haiti in 86 so there had been like one coup after another after another. And so there was actually a period where there had been a bunch of bombs in the capital. And so they sent all the kids who were mostly from the provinces back home so that they would be safer. And so I was just like at the school downtown in Port-au-Prince with no real like no kids to do and like nothing really specific I was supposed to be doing. So there was an American dentist who was uh, staying at, who came to visit at the school. And he said, oh, I'm going to the home for the dying today. Do you want to come? And I was like still enough of an adolescent, I was like 19, that I was like, I kind of converted that to a dare and said yes, you know, like, oh, okay, you dare me? Okay, I will. And then that's where I met the nuns. What made you want to become a nun? So I met the Missionaries of Charity. So they're Mother Teresa's nuns, right? So it's interesting because there's so many non-American uh, religious who are very kind of have pretty progressive politics, yes. right? As far as, you know, like Joan Chittister really kind of started the mainstream conversation about abolishing the death penalty, right? Like she was, people have very, you know, there's anti-abortion, you know, the Vatican has huge files on most American uh, convents because, you know, the Vatican finds them problematic. But the missionaries of charity, in fact, are not like that. They just feed people. They just like take care of dying people. And what attracted to me was because it wasn't so like white saviory that most of the people who make up the missionaries of charity, actually 60% of them are Indian. Um, but most come from, like, the places where they serve, right? Hmm. And one of the things they tried to do, and of course you can't do it because if you take the involuntary part of 
poverty, it makes it not poverty, right? (laughs) So, but like voluntary poverty. And they live like really simply. And so kind of all these, like there was one point when I was a nun when we were all standing around at night and you like sing in front of the statue of Mary. And I was like, you know, in the candlelight, I'm looking around all the sisters and I think like, oh man, I get to live with these beautiful women for the rest of my life. And it occurred to me that maybe that's not what everyone was thinking, (laughs) you know, like maybe other people had. So I don't think that was like my full uh, motivation, but it was like, I was looking, I will say that the elevator pitch was, I was looking for a life that made sense. And it made sense, you know, like the missionaries of charity, they're not like, cause you know, some, some American nuns just like, oh, I can tell you're a nun because you're just wearing frumpy clothes, but the missionaries of charity really kind of, you know, they only have two sets of clothes and they, you know, wear their shoes until they fall apart and kneel bare, you know. It has kneel. that asceticism that perhaps connects a little bit to your early childhood. Right. Too. Yes, there's that. Yeah. I would say but, like. But a, for a greater cause. Right, right. Exactly. I would say, um, I used to have a stand up line about it that, oh, the convent felt like home to me. But I have a little tip for you. If you have from uh, alcoholic family and haven't had much therapy, you might want to think twice about making a major life decision because it feels like home. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Uh, I, am, I am sort of curious about like homoerotic, single-sex religious spaces. What Was that like a vibe at all within like the comments? Well, it's, it's something, you know, there's a name for it. They call... Uh, None, none on none action is particular friendship, which I just think is hilarious. None on none action is particular friendship. <laughs> That's so, like the official term. Well, yeah, I mean, I think she you, developed a particular friendship. Right. I mean, I, I don't. I, there might be a different term, like if yeah. you start like actually getting it on, but the kind of, <laughs> you know, lesbianism is particular friendship, meaning you are not equally friends with everybody. You are more friends with one person than somebody else. <laughs> um, and that's, a, it's a constant battle, right? Cause like the convent's full of dykes, you know? Uh, yeah. I would imagine. I'd yes, imagine yeah. actually a, a ton of queer people yeah, would um, be attracted to. Yeah. Right. Like of that. course. I mean, I also feel like, you know, when people are like, Whoa, how did you go from being a nun to a, not that I exactly identify as lesbian, but for the, the sake of argument, how'd you mm. go from being a nun to a lesbian nurse? I'm like, really? That's not even like a curve. That's yeah, like a straight line. <laughs> that's like a straight fucking line. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so of course, it's just like, you know, and so many times, there have been so many times where I'm like, ads like organizing the Philly Dyke March where I'd be like, oh, I know you, but you were, you know, you were Sister Angeles. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's so many queers. Wait, so, but explain perhaps to people who are, who don't inhabit queer religious spaces, like how it is that the connection or the overlap. Well, if you just think about like, oh, I want to be around a bunch of tough women who do shit themselves and have a deep longing for the world to be a better place. Are you with nuns or were you with dykes? It's hard to say, right? Hard to say, yeah. yeah. Okay. So was that, I don't, I don't know exactly how you identify, but was, was your time in the convent time in which you sort of were coming out in some ways for yourself? I mean, what have you? Uh, no, okay. I hadn't figured it out. Okay. I mean, even though I, now I say like, oh, of course I was love, in love with Sister Amabella. Like, um, like I did not, part of it is you just had no, like we had all these kind of anti-horniness rules yeah. <laughs> um i mean i didn't have they come um, but like we had to dress underneath a sheet so we all slept in a room oh. all slept in one room 
And so your bed would be like eight inches from the person next to you. You would actually have to plan in the morning because by the time the bell rang five times, you were supposed to be on the ground and praying. But if you didn't plan it with the person whose bed was next to you, you could actually end up like on top of them. Like they had to go one way and you had to go the other, you know. But then we would dress underneath a sheet, which was hilarious because it was 440. It was completely dark. We didn't turn on the lights. Like nobody was seeing anything. And all it did was just make it much harder. And also because you have, in my case, American girls learning how to put the because it's uh, of Indian origin, the habit is a sari. And so, like, you can imagine, Mm -hmm. like, a person who is not traditionally wearing a sari has had 20 seconds of instruction on how to put on a sari, and also there's a sheet involved. Like, you know, there's at least twice I came down to the chapel and I was like, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't my... This is not meant to be my clothing. This is my bed clothing. <laughs> so but there's like that, those kind of anti-horniness rules. And we never sat on each other's bed. We never went into the dorm during the day. We never touched each other even in jest. Like the only touching that you mm. got any time was, I guess your family could hug you when they came to visit, which would be once a month. But in the morning, as you left out your mistress, which is fantastic, she would put her hand on your head and say, God bless you, you know, like a parental blessing. Kind of thing. You'd be like, oh, my one touch of the day. <laughs> yes, yes. You'd be like, oh, don't let her. Yeah. And sometimes if she was like really feeling bad for you, she would use both her hands, and that just felt like you know, yeah. full frontal or something. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And what did you learn about like poverty? You, you brought up that theme earlier in Brazil. Well, I mean, one of the things that was really so I can remember being sitting at the superior of the house that I was at, actually in the Bronx. My immediate supervisor. Sister Amalas asked the person who was like the spirit of the house to come like deliver some instruction to us. And we were talking about like what's hardest for you as a nun, which is not a conversation we got to have very much. You weren't, you're supposed to pretend like nothing was hard, you know? And the sister who grew up in Nepal was like, well, the hardest thing for me is that I know that my sister and brothers don't have enough to eat. Like when they go to bed, they often go to bed hungry and I never go to bed hungry. And so that's like the hardest thing for me. And you're like, Oh, okay. All right. That's okay. So I was going to complain about not having any Diet Coke, but you know, (laughs) or how much my knees hurt, but I guess, yeah. (laughs) You were praying four hours a day? Four hours a day on bare concrete floor. Kneeling. Kneeling. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I would put it up there in my list of complaints too. (laughs) I understand. But, but what, how did that, what her statement, how did that sit with you? So, I mean, One of the things is that as much as we were emotionally intimate, then you heard like kind of, you were conversations with people who really came from different, you know, I definitely was from a family that struggled, you know, depending on who my mom was married to at the time. That's a different kind of struggle, right? When you're like, then hunger is a regular part of your life. So one thing is that helped me to see that person as a person. And so when I think about like, okay, what, how is, how are things making the world a better place? Like, aside from like, okay, well, it just makes you want to work alongside somebody as opposed to like trying to fix something. Cause obviously like sister, what's her name? She has something to say about it. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, in that way it's kind of like this deep connection. And I think about this, I still set my clock, my, we got up every morning at 4.40, and I still set my alarm for 4.40 every morning. And I often think about part of our morning prayer was, in cooperation with all the masses offered throughout the uh, Catholic world today, we offer you our heart. And I still think about that, you know, because like, there's all those sisters. And I, I do think there is the other question of, I mean, you had to sign my mom, even though I was like in my 20s, my mom had to sign something saying she would take me back if it didn't work out. 
And I don't think that was made for like my mom, you know, it was made for families who maybe like, we're not going to have the means to take people back if something didn't work out. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I I feel like there are some ways in which, you know, I'll say like, I would like to run a little bit of an underground railroad for the missionaries of charity, you know, like, but as one of the nuns was like, we were talking about obedience and she was like, if I was at home, my father would just be telling me what to do or my husband. So it doesn't really matter to me that my mistress is telling me what to do because that would be my existence anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, it's interesting because socialists, so democratic socialists tend to kind of look down upon like more direct service types of actions and that type of thing. But there's something about the experiences, I suppose, of solidarity and embodied experiences in terms of like being on the ground that I think is something that people who maybe are more like armchair Mm. political scientists or political (laughs) theorists lack. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there's no question. I I even had this argument with like the sisters about like, okay, so like we should be protesting something too. (laughs) They'd be like, I remember we used to go this, you know, when there was an open air drug market at 120th street in Harlem. And I remember we used to go pray the rosary there. Right. And I referred to that as a protest one time. Mm. And the sisters like, it is not a protest. We are praying for the drug dealers. And I was like, I don't know if that's how they're experiencing. I think they're probably experiencing it as a protest. And, you know, whether that was the right target, you know, that's certainly debatable. But they really didn't like that idea that we were somehow protesting something. And, I mean, one of the big charges labeled, uh, leveled against the missionaries of charity. And, like, people say that they have must have a ton of money put away and... Maybe that's possible. I don't know. They're so disorganized. I feel like it's not put away neatly in a bank for sure. It's just in a bucket somewhere and somebody forgot where it is, but is that they're not addressing systemic change. And that's definitely true. They're not. But also they are feeding people who nobody else wants to feed, right? In places nobody else wants to do. And so, I mean, I know the whole thing. If we don't feed people, then there will be an uprising. I mean, I know that like theory, but also like somebody's starving. So, so it's a little cold. Uh, that's Susan Sarandon, you know, <laughs> like you're like, oh, well, then we'll bring about the revolution. Really, Susan Sarandon, really? Because do you think you're, how, how's the revolution going to be for you in your $5 million apartment? Yeah. Uh, and so... How did you, what happened after the convent? So I was trying to make it work for the convent. And because I had volunteered with the Missionaries of Charity for a long time before I actually joined, they kind of were trying to make it work. But it was like clear from the moment, not from the moment I stepped inside, but I was in something called pre-aspirancy, which is your very, very first, and it's supposed to last a month. It took me 18 months. So it's the preschool equivalent of failing 18 times, right? Like... And they were trying, but, you know, remember the regional superior took me aside and she was like, uh, Sister Mercy, that's my name. Uh, the problem with you is you just have too much self-esteem <laughs> uh, and insufficient docility. So, you know, like, insuffi- like too much self-esteem is kind of a termination notice you're only going to get from the convent. You know, nobody's going to go to, I'm going to go to work tomorrow. They'll be like, you know, Kelly, you just have too much self-esteem. You feel good about yourself and... Um, makes you an effective advocate. I'm sorry, that just doesn't work for us. You know, like that's really specific to the nuns. So I kind of, what one of the things that happened is I just started having my period for like ever. Like I had my period for like a hundred days. <laughs> and uh, now I like, of course, my body was like super stressed out. Mm. But there was like no reason for it. Like they couldn't, you know, they don't have medical insurance, but they like took me to a, a, I somebody I suppose was technically a doctor, <laughs> I hope. And then they're like, oh, sorry, we can't find any reason for it. And so that was kind of the segue. I was like, do you think there's something wrong? And they're like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, well, do you, do you think I should, uh, you know, go home and figure this out? And they're like, yes. It took, you know, they didn't even pretend like they had to think about it. 
So then I just, I, you know, Sister Angeles looking happier than I had ever seen her, my immediate superior, you took me to Port Authority and she was like, okay, where do you want a bus ticket to? Just like stamping her, not stamping, but like tapping her toe. Waiting. This whole time you were in New York City? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Not in Haiti. No, I don't. You have to, uh, American sisters have to join um, in the U.S. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. And so she's just tapping her, fo- her foot and... She's like, so where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? And I was like, well, I don't know. I thought, I thought this whole Jesus getting married to Jesus thing was forever. So I don't really have a plan here, you know? Um, but my sister was living in Philadelphia. So I said, I guess Philadelphia. And then I just like stayed with my sister for a couple of weeks. And then with a volunteer who had worked at the soup kitchen that I'd worked at in near Philadelphia with the sisters, put me up for a little bit. And I got like a job, an apartment and got into therapy and found a softball team. And that's kind of when I figured out, like, I remember where I was like walking to the person's house and I was like, Oh, 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 I'm gay. Oh, Oh, uh, hmm, okay. Like it was kind of, and that simple by then, yeah. you know, like by that time I was like, Oh, that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How old were you at the time? 27. So you were in the convent for, well, I or- was, yeah, for a while. I was either a full-time volunteer or in the convent with them for seven years. So seven years. It was, it, was a good, it was a good chunk of time. Wow. Yeah. It's So, yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing about your period lasting 100 days, it's just so funny because, like, oftentimes our bodies will know what to do. Yeah. And they'll, like, pull the <laughs> yeah, escape right, hatch. Right, right. My uterus was like, come on, get out, get out. <laughs> like the Amityville Horror or something. <laughs> and, and if you buy, like, certain medieval depictions of Jesus' stigma <laughs> as, like, a vagina then you could say like the blood of jesus saved you right right exactly <laughs> from, that's brilliant <laughs> from preacher knee injuries <laughs> got it and so i mean you were in such a kind of an intense dedicated like this is your life purpose to be married to jesus and to serve the poor how did you think about like what to do with your life after that well survival was like a piece right because mm. i hadn't actually finished a bachelor's degree and i didn't really have any skills except for like cooking making bad food for large quantities of people. So, but I got a job working in Project Home, which is Philadelphia's like really grassroots anti-homelessness organization. And now they own like, you know, hundreds of city blocks and, you know, have like tons and tons of units of housing. Yeah, they're kind of like the housing works of Hmm. of Philadelphia, uh, which was a really good place to land. And then I was like, well, I think I probably need some skills or something. So I went back to school for nursing. But, I mean, one of the things that was most helpful to me is um, I was walking down the street and I had gone to try and sell plasma. I mean, I didn't didn't have any money, right? And I went to try and sell plasma. And um, I ran into, I was in front of the state building and there were people that said, like, Catholic worker, you know, Catholic workers. And then it said something about against the death penalty. And I was like, I love the Catholic worker. I'm against the death penalty. So they were doing doing a vigil for an hour, and I just like walked up to them and just started talking, and uh, they couldn't really go anywhere because they were there. But it was three dykes, and the Catholic worker in Philadelphia. I hope they're out. I guess they're out. Anyway, who also ran a free clinic and that kind of thing, and they were kind of my segue from the strict religious life to like figuring out a new life. That was just they were really really helpful. Every, and almost everyone I met hmm. in Philadelphia, I met through them. But that was, I mean, it could not have been more happenstance. Like I literally was walking down the street and ran into them. So what new religious or political or social life did they inaugurate, help you help inaugurate? Well, I mean, I just, I felt like they had kind of this idea of, you know, the idea behind the Catholic workers. People joke that it's full of people who are neither Catholic nor workers, but they just had like more of a cafeteria idea of Catholicism, right? And that 
Peter Morin started with a very specific socialist ideal. It's a way of, it was more of a social justice rather than, I guess it's cause, because they, in addition to doing vigils and stuff like that, they also had a free clinic in Philadelphia, right? So treated people with kind of a respect that you don't sometimes don't see in traditional nonprofit work. So it just kind of gave me like, oh, I could have a life like this. I could do this. This could be helpful. I don't have to be this, do this banana pants thing where I kneel for four hours. Like there's something else, you know, there's some other way to help the world. Did you already have a kind of political consciousness prior to that? Or yeah, okay. like definitely I had, I thought about a lot of things, but just didn't have a, like a specific identity or anything. But yeah. Got it. And then now you're a nurse, you're a comedian, storyteller, I don't know what all the hats you wear. <laughs> Tell me if I'm missing some of some of them. I mean, that's mostly I've I've written a bunch of books. Books, yes, author, uh, and I work in the public school system. I guess you do a ton of things. But how did you go from, I guess, working in Project Home, what have you, to like finding a storytelling as a kind of niche that you've developed? Yeah, so I started. I always wanted to be when I was a kid. I would tell on my way home on our three quarters of a mile long driveway. I would there are cows on both sides, and I would always like take forever to walk in like I would be late doing my chores because I was telling the, the cows jokes like I always wanted to be a stand-up comedy comedian when I was a kid the ca- cows were I mean Wisconsin dairy cows especially those who were like just, like free-range dairy cows totally the chillest cows you could ever imagine they were not a bad audience like they would stay there they didn't really laugh I don't know what a cow laugh starts sounds like but they were pretty chill and you know polite they were a polite audience so I always wanted to be a comic but and I tried a little bit when I was first living in Philadelphia, but it's stand-up comedy is like 1950s Alabama, even still now. I started going to an open mic in Northeast Philadelphia that was in the basement of a Best Western, and they they would go. Well, I used to start every set with, uh, "I just need you guys to go with me, uh, ignore all the visual cues, and believe that I'm a an adult female and not a 12 year old boy." And um, one of the guys, one of the comics from the front yelled, you're not a 12-year-old boy, you're a big, fat, ugly dyke. And before I could put it through the censor in my brain, I said, oh, you're just sad I'm not a 12-year-old boy, you and the Catholic priest both. Uh, (laughs) And he chased me with a broken bottle in the parking lot afterwards. And I was like, you know, maybe I should try and find some other places to perform. Like, this seems like this is not a good fit. And so I started performing more. That's a great comeback, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it was, but it was too much. (laughs) You know, like like he poked me with his finger and I swung at him with a baseball bat. It was just too much. (laughs) So I started performing in the queer community. And then always my style of stand-up has been somewhat storytelling. When I first started, I felt like I needed to do set-up punch. But you can do stand-up comic that's storytelling as long as you have enough laugh lines. So... I actually started a storytelling show before I even knew that a storytelling show was a thing. Myself and Jenny Murphy, who's a playwright, uh, we were talking about, like, there's so many ways in which if you go, go around New York, you know, you go to a party, every single person has a one-person show. You know, like, oh, here's my one-person show about my first menstrual period. Here's my, you know. And so we're like, we need to get queers whose stories are not being told to be able to tell them. 
And so we weren't really thinking of it as a storytelling show. I guess we were thinking of like a kind of just a performing series, but we wanted non-performers. And so after three or four times, we the first one was at Collect Pond, which was in Williamsburg. It was an underground performance space. It was so underground, we couldn't advertise where it was. Like it was really somebody's apartment. And it was January 30th. It was freezing cold and 115 people came to this person's apartment. Mm. And we were like, okay, I think we hit on something here. So actually it's Queer Memoir that got me into storytelling because people had such a reaction to it. It made me realize that you can have, with storytelling, you can have a point, you know, you can have like a deeper truth and it can be funny throughout, but you get to have a deeper truth as well. So we will work with people on a story until they're ready to tell it. I mean, there's one person I exchanged 72 emails with before we were at like where they wanted to be with their story because it's not people who usually do this kind of thing. And I didn't really realize that, you know, in a way that's like a... People have always said that, like, oh, it's so great, it's a gift, but I haven't really understand it. But now that I've had some coaching myself, like, I just did the Moth Main stage, and they're very generous with coaching. And I was like, oh, yeah, I came to a completely different conclusion about the story that I was telling. Like, Hmm. I understood more what it meant in my life because of the coaching, because of, like, the fact of coming up with the narrative actually helps you assign the meaning, you know? Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) And you did a whole storytelling festival on organs. Oh, so... um, it's called Organ Recital, Recital, and it's stories about bodies, health, and healthcare. Yeah. And a big push within the New York City DSA is to pass the New York Health Act, which will do a single-payer right. um, plan. And when I read about the festival, I was like, oh, this is a, a really neat intersection of pretty radical political ideas, but in the very, through the vessels of very, very concrete stories. What, what inspired the Jesuit Festival? Well, uh, I had, had been thinking about it for a while, and then I was like, I don't know, you know. And then P- Trump was elected. And then I was like, oh, well, this is not the time for stories. And then everyone's like, yes, this is, please do this festival, please. Mm. And it ended up being really one of the things that allowed people to do. It gave people who are performers a time and a place to go a little bit deeper. One of the shows, there were three comics who had cancer experiences, personal cancer experiences, um, and they'd never talked about it on stage. They're like, oh, people won't laugh. You know, we won't get to laughter. And because they had, like, this place that was specifically nurturing this and specifically working, they all talk about it now in their shows, you know? On on Valentine's night, which is a very hard night to get people to do anything besides go to expensive restaurants and be angry at each other for insufficient gifts, but we had a show called I Heart My Pre-Existing Condition, and it was curated by Stephanie Schroeder and Kelly Bedwell. Uh, Stephanie is like a mental health advocate. And they basically had people tell first-person stories of what it means to them to be able to get insured because they have pre-existing conditions. And that was really a powerful, like, people thought there was something different happening at the space, and they kept wandering into the space, and then they kept staying. Like, who comes in and, like... It was Valentine's Day and what was a show about insurance, you know, but it was about real lives and real people. So it was kind of amazing in a way I hadn't even expected it to be. So what does telling stories in the age of Trump, how does that feel now as opposed to pre-Trump, I guess? I mean, I feel like there is a special way in which it's not really that this has been, I mean, it has kind of been festering all along, but 
people really feel this new permission to speak, right? And one of the things I've tried to do, I try and do it on social media, which is just ridiculous, but I'm still friends with everybody that I've ever been friends with on social media, you know, so that like means somebody from Bible college would be like, I'm so glad Jesus gave me this beautiful day. And the next person is like, so-and-so is going to the Deep Dick Collective. Like it's a very, it's a, there's a lot going on in my feed. Whenever people are like, oh, well, the ridiculous idea that undocumented people are voting or are committing crimes. I'm like, okay, so have you ever actually met an undocumented person? And hey, I have this friend who blah, 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 and this is why an undocumented person is not going to vote because like they don't want to be found, just like that kind of thing. So I feel like there is a sense in which people using their own voices might be the only thing because also nobody believes the media anymore. Like the yeah. left doesn't believe the media, the right doesn't believe the yeah, media. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like, like that's kind of what the only thing that the far right and the far left have in common right now is nobody trusts what the press is saying. I mean, I still think the press is super important, but I feel like it's, you know, these personal stories might be the only way we're going to reach each other. I remember doing a similar kind of exercise of how to kind of call in your racist relatives over Thanksgiving table. And, you know, the initial inclinations to cite articles, statistics from media sources. But they were like, no, you got to tell stories actually even and I was like can I make up a story and (laughs) recrib it from a media story I just say my friend Uh, because you know my friend network is not super diverse but yeah I don't don't think storytelling is like particularly powerful if you want to like pierce through the armors that people have yeah I feel like in, you know, in work in high school, we're always telling kids not to believe everything they read on the internet. And I'm like, but wait, believe some of the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned earlier that um, before I started recording, you talked about how you're, I asked if you're still religious. You said you're looking for one. What's your <laughs> shopping criteria? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I always feel like uh, I'm all, always looking and anytime I hear it, oh, really? That's an interesting thing. Like somebody just told me about it's actually a, it's like a storytelling gig that people were, were saying like, oh, here, I'll let me get you this gig. And it's like a group of people in Manhattan that just listen to music in the, on Sunday mornings. And then they drink coffee and eat pastries together. And I was like, that sounds fine. Or I performed at the Brooklyn Ethical Society. I was like, oh, this is fine. I mean, it's nice you're not calling it church, but it's at 11 a.m. in a church-like building and you have a speaker for 20 <laughs> minutes and then you sing before and after. Okay, it's not church, fine. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that churches do well is caregiving. And I mean, specifically caregiving, like for people who are sick or need care, but also kind of in the general sense. I see that with my mom's church. And I think people are always searching for that community. And people especially search in New York. I feel like we organize around our niche. Like, uh, I'm a, I have a friend who's a, he's a dancer and he's gay. pretty big overlap, but he was talking about how there's gay New York and there's dance New York. And then also he grew up in like Brooklyn as like his dad is a glassblower and there's apparently a glassblower in New York as well. So I feel like that's how we build our church in New York is around like those niches, like, you know, the dance church. But so I think we're all looking for community. That's, you know, like Dorothy Day, we're, we've all known the long loneliness and the answer is love and the, that love is found in community. So I always feel like, okay, well, queer memoir, it's almost like church for me, you know, mm. you share it, give your testimony on stage. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's really very similar. That's interesting because I work with all, all of my main coworkers, my close coworkers are all literally identify as church ladies. And I really enjoy them. Like I really, I get their, get 
culturally, you know, where they come from. And I really enjoy them. And it's still something I kind of weirdly miss, but it doesn't seem like so much of an option. So many mainstream religions, but... Not so much an option in terms of... I don't know. I mean, I know more churches are more queer accepting now. And I mean, kind of in a way I never thought was going to happen. Yeah. But, I don't know. It does seem like belief is an important part of that. So, you know, like I kind of feel like... You could join a non-belief oriented religion. (laughs) Right, yeah. Practice oriented. (laughs) Yeah, I remember like somebody talking about... Remember The Door? That satirical evangelical magazine... I don't think it exists anymore. And they were talking about the Unitarian uh, Easter morning hymn. And it was like, Jesus Christ might be risen today, we, whether or not we cannot say. <laughs> like a fantastic Unitarian hymn. So You use our fun. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting thinking about religious community. I have a friend, I don't know if you maybe you know her, Liz Edmonds. She wrote the book Queer Virtue. She's an Episcopal priest. And she sort of talks about the ways in which she sort of learned Christianity and like the truth and hearts of Christianity through her experiences in the queer community mm. and sort of the ways in which w- the model of sacrifice and love and commitment to one another that she saw within the queer community, particularly during the AIDS crisis, was like, oh, this is what the church is supposed to be like. And so she did a lot of those kind of like, this is a lesson I learned in the queer community and this is how this is super relevant for Christians. And I- I'm thinking particularly there's this, I haven't thought about till you talked like, the commitment to care for one another truly as brethren for people who are not actually related to you exists, I think, in pockets of the church, pockets of the core community, and potentially pockets of like more socialist mm. sort of um, spaces where there is also a community. I don't know if you've noticed that type of overlap uh, in terms of the, the kinds of community norms and behaviors. Yeah, I mean, definitely my mom, when she came... Uh, it's interesting, been you know watching my mom's progression, right? Because she came, you know, definitely from the stoic, Germanic, like you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Uh, but now she's older, and she also is in a church that really cares for people. And uh, when I had my first knee replacement, she came to visit me, and like my friends had set up a Google Doc, and we're all you know like trading off. And then um, when she she fell and broke, like she has osteoporosis, she fell and broke, like. Her hip, she's 86, her hip, her ankle, her arm, and her shoulder. And um, then kind of I went to visit to help out. Like I was kind of in the position that she had been, but with her church people. And Mm. she actually even mentioned how similar it seemed. And the Google Doc, what were people trading off exactly? Um, Like to come, like bring meals or uh, Mm -hmm. take me to appointments or whatever. Or to just help out, yeah, in general. Um, And so, you know. I even, like, shared the Google Doc with my mom, and she was like, oh, we already have one like that, you know. (laughs) Um, So it was actually kind of amazing how similar it was. I mean, I often think of, like, how it just doesn't seem like queers kind of love God in a way that you're like, eh, really? You know, like, uh, queers love us some God even when, like, doesn't seem like God is loving us back, you know? Like, there's that Hmm. kind of deep spirituality of the queer community. I mean, pockets of the queer community, of course, like, not everyone but we're even kind of just like a regular old queer doesn't have like necessarily any kind of specific like deep political reasons to be part of community you know still is like oh well of course we got to do this you know yeah and in that way they're enacting scenes from the book of acts but also (laughs) a sort of like um a a somewhat Mm anti-capitalist way of understanding how to relate to one another 
Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And and also see, really seeing community as something deeply, deeply valuable, like more. I mean, I, I really feel like that is one of the things when we talk about cutting somebody off from community and stuff like that. It's can be like actually you can endanger somebody's life, you know? So like when we talk about like, oh, well, this person just needs to be cut off. Like, okay, all right. If, you know, they're a predator or something. Yes, of course. But also let's realize like in the queer community, that can be life and death, you know? It's, you know, it's, it's real. How would you say like queer politics contrast to like capitalist politics in terms of understanding value, in terms of understanding? Right, well, like the idea that yeah. people value more than things, I would say. I mean, of course, there's like tons of material, like super materialistic queer. So I don't want to say that, but that um, it's basically valuing community as a real thing, not as a, okay, as a Hallmark card thing, but as something like hard and fast and real and powerful. Yeah. And I think in some ways that property is not your own. In a sense, of possessions are not quite your own. They mm. are, are communally meant to be shared. You know, if you have an empty space in your apartment or someone needs help moving your time, you know, your time, mm, yeah. there, there are collective claims on it. It's not just like right, individual yeah. sort of optimization. Type right, of yeah. I, I think that's definitely true. And I say that all the time, right? When people yeah. are like helping each other out with... Like, oh, I'm okay, let's do a top surgery benefit. Sometimes for people they don't even know. Yes. You know? Even I think of some of the people who, like, when I had the, like, one of my third or fourth surgeries where I didn't have a knee for a while, like, they took out the whole knee and then couldn't put it back. Like, they took out the knee replacement, but I didn't have a knee anymore, so they just had to leave it out for four or five months while the infection cleared. And people who came and helped I'd never met before. I was like, oh, hi, who are you? In my apartment. Gee, thanks, you know? Yeah. I'm just kind of feeling like, oh, no, this is, like, having this idea that, we have responsibility for each other, you know. And is that very similar, different to the ethics within the convent, or, or well, it's like such totally a hierarchical yeah. uh, organization, right? So, but I do feel like that was like one of the things is that you were always kind of looking for something to do for someone else, you know, for one of your sisters. My mistress used to say, "Nobody's washing is done until everyone's washing is done." When we would ha- like we hand wash our our own clothes, but. Uh, if somebody else was going behind, you would always help them before you would go to hang your own clothes, you know? And if someone gave something, let's say, like... You, you oh, yeah, you never kept your own shit. Right. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 in terms of private possession, property. The, yeah, there was none of that. There was very low. I suppose the difference is that it's someone commanding you to do it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, the idea right. is it's voluntary right, right, first, right, and then, but yeah, you wouldn't, like... I remember one time my sister brought cookies, and she was like, oh, yeah, cookies are for everyone. Cookies are for one person, you know? <laughs> Okay, good. Got it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time to come all the way to in our part of Brooklyn. <laughs> no worries, no worries. I'm, I was really happy to do it. Thanks okay. for asking me. Of course, of course. And that was Kelly Dunham. She's a comedian, storyteller, ex-nun, queer person. Really funny, as you probably could hear from the interview. Hope you laughed out loud and came away with some interesting food for thought. Yeah, she really got me thinking about the line she said about how it's a straight line from being a nun to being a, a lesbian nurse and there's a certain kind of commonality that dykes and uh, nuns share in terms of being people who are you know want to do good shit in the world want to help people and are joined to, drawn to kind of like self-sufficient way of operating and I think I've always been kind of interested in ways in which queer communities and religious communities can practice a kind of communal sharing um, a kind of like you know everyone who has need it will be their need will be met 
um, can practice a kind of basically sort of communal anarchist uh, socialist type politics without necessarily having that kind of analysis of that kind of ideology so I think his stories really kind of exemplify that in a variety of ways once again you're listening to the religious socialism podcast hosted by the DSA I want to give a shout out to our patrons Adam Paul John Maxine Richard Christopher and some of the initials WR uh, really appreciate your support especially because we haven't been super uh, you know, we've tried to use these once a month. It hasn't been always worked out this way. We really appreciate your support and your like continued faith in what we do, and it helps obviously pay the costs of basically basically doing these podcasts. And I want to encourage you if you're interested in starting or joining a religious socialism chapter in your city, please contact us at religioussocialism.org. Um, we have a great blog there, we have lots of great content. You can learn more about podcasts there. Um, but we're really kind of growing and expanding. I want to be a bigger presence within the DSA. So we're on Twitter as well, Village Social Pod, and Facebook at Religious Socialism. Um, I'm Sarah New. This podcast was produced by the very wonderful Devin Brisky, and I'll talk to you all soon.